Hi, I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom, and you're listening to True Crime Exposed. So we are here recording together again. Actually, I'm in Utah again because we just went down to the Justin Bieber concert last night. Oh, yeah. It was awesome. It was actually the time of my life. <laughs> I'm literally in love with Justin Bieber. He loves his wife so much. It's so cute. Who isn't? He can dance. He can. He has the most awesome voice ever. It shows a good time. It was so much fun. It was me, my mom, two of my little sisters, Carly and Cassie, and then my husband, Jacob. He was not excited, but I feel like he left having a great time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) It was the best. So anyway, we are here today recording together, which that was actually a pretty good palate cleanser for us because we are getting into a really, really bad case this week. And it is going to be multiple parts. So today I am bringing you part one. And then hopefully it's just two parts. It might be more than that, though, because this is a lot. So and I don't think my mom's ever heard of it. I asked her if she had heard of these people and she said she hadn't. This is a pretty well-known case, so you may or may not know it, but you're about to get to know it. So it's October 6th, 1985, when David Smith comes home in the late night hours and he walks inside and he's just sort of pacing back and forth, building up this courage to tell his wife what he just witnessed. He's scared as hell and probably in shock, but there's no way he was going to keep this to himself. So he wakes up his wife, Maureen, and he tells her that he just watched her sister, Myra Henley, and Myra's boyfriend, Ian Brady, kill someone. And Maureen Henley is obviously taken back, like, excuse me, they killed someone. And he's like, yeah, and they want me to go back in the morning to help them dispose of his body. And I don't know what's happening. They killed this guy over at your grandma's house. Like, what do I do? So they were all hanging out at the grandma's house and the wife wasn't there. Yes, but David was actually lured there later in the night, we'll we'll realize. So like Maureen, his wife... Her sister, Myra, had come over and had gotten David to come with her over to her house. And it's Maureen and Myra's grandma's house that they were at where they, you know, he's saying that Myra and Ian killed this guy. Okay. So it was earlier that night of October 6, 1965, that Myra Henley and Ian Brady had gone down to the Manchester. 1965 or 1985? 65. The first time you said Did I say 85? Yeah. Crap. It's 65. Yeah. It's 65. So I messed up in the beginning. It's 1965. (laughs) (laughs) My bad. So yes, it is 1965. Myra Henley and Ian Brady, they go down to the Manchester Central train station and they were intentionally seeking out a victim to kill. So Myra and Ian are dating. They've been in this serious relationship for a couple of years now, and you will all learn that they are absolutely disgusting and evil scums of this earth. So it's at a bar near this train station that Ian spots Edward Evans. 
Edward had been out and about all evening just looking for a good time and there was like this bar type place in the train station but when he got there it was closed so he's like bummed out and he goes out looking for something else to do. Now, Edward was really young, so at this time, he was just 17 years old, not old enough to drink, but he could go out and, you know, find places to do it. And Myra was 23 years old at this time, and Ian was 27 years old. But Ian was described as this well-dressed and charming man, so once he got chatting with Edward, it was pretty easy... It was pretty easy for Ian to convince him that he should come back to his house for a drink. Well, Annie was quite a few years older. Yeah, 10 years older. So he was probably, he probably thought like, he was yeah, cool. Yeah, he probably thought this guy can buy me some alcohol, like we can drink together. So once he convinces him to go back to his house, Ian leads the way to the car and they hop in. And Myra is there driving. She's like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. I am Ian's sister. So the couple is obviously lying to Edward and it's in this attempt to make him feel more comfortable. They don't want him to know that they're a couple. And I think they're trying to push the narrative that Edward was the one hanging out with Ian in this romantic type way. Ian, yeah, like they're (laughs) hanging out like romantically. So Ian, he was self-described as a bisexual. So even though him and Myra are in a relationship and they're dating, they were always in this open type relationship. Oh, okay. So he, they're luring him there on the premise that not just to drink, but like for a hookup probably. Oh. Yeah. So Myra, she drives them all back to 16 Wardle Brook Avenue in Hattersley, which is in the greater Manchester area of England. And this is the home of Myra's grandma, that grandma that she was living with during this time. So Myra, Ian, and Edward, they go inside, and while Ian is getting drinks ready for him and Edward, he tells Myra that he wants her to go and get her brother-in-law, David Smith. Remember, this is the man from the beginning of our story that had to go home and tell his wife what he had just witnessed. So when Ian is telling Myra to go get David, she's like, no, I don't think this is smart. He will definitely increase our chances of getting caught for what's about to happen. But Ian feels like he's built this strong bond with David, and it's time that he brings him in on this murder scheme. So David had married Maureen Hinley just one year earlier in 1964. He was 17 years old and Maureen was 19, but her family didn't necessarily approve of David. He had this history of a criminal record, and that dated all the way back to when he was 11 years old. So when he was 11... David had to go to court for hurting another boy with a knife during a fight. And from there, he continued getting in trouble for violence and all these petty crimes. He was expelled from school after punching the headmaster. And then at the All Saints school he was moved to, he actually hit another kid with a cricket bat. Like a cricket bat. <laughs> so he was wow, just a little bit violent. Nice. Yeah. He was definitely getting into a lot of trouble and he just couldn't stop from getting into it. And David, he didn't have the easiest household. And of course, that played a role in his behavior. So his mom, Joyce Hull, she was a teenager when she had him and she actually disappeared when he was still a baby. Originally, he was born as David Hull because his parents were not married, but his mom's disappearance left David's dad, Jack Smith, as a single father who couldn't handle the responsibility. 
So instead, Jack gave David to his own parents, and David's last name was changed to Smith. His dad, Jack, continued on with his engineering career, and once David was six years old, he reconnected with his dad. Now, after that whole cricket bat incident where he hit that other kid, he was then sent to a remand home, and this is like a detention center for juveniles. And after this, he went on to his next school, and that's where he meets Maureen Hinley. And Maureen was working as a factory machinist, and David, he decided to leave school at 15 years old to go back and work, not go back, to go and work as an electrician. Unfortunately, he wasn't super great at being on time, so this path didn't work out for him when he was fired, and instead he went on to just take, like, odd jobs as a laborer. So was Maureen 13 when she was working? She was young when she was working, I think. (laughs) I read a bunch of stuff that this was, like, post-war Britain, so I guess a Mm. lot of these kids came from, like, really poor families, families that, like, weren't doing great, and Maureen, she did come from a bad household which we'll get into when we talk about Myra's childhood Mm, okay so after this we know that he ends up marrying Maureen when he's 17 and she's two years older than him and I had heard on Morbid podcast quite a while ago when they covered this case that Maureen and David had a baby together and that Ian and Myra were not super interested in the baby they kind of acted standoffish Myra wasn't like this typical aunt and their baby actually died, which is so sad. Um, I can't find a lot of info on this myself. I'm sure Elena read it in a book or something for her podcast. So I know the info is right, but the book I read, it just didn't have any of this info. But I thought it should be included that they had this baby that passed away and then they did go on to have other children as well. Now, this whole background and David's, like, bad boy image is what drew Ian to him. Regardless of the rest of Maureen's family being super weary of him, Ian didn't mind this about David because both Ian and Myra saw him as a potential partner in crime. So Ian, being about 10 years older, he takes David under his wing. Both of the couples would hang out, they would drink together, and Ian felt like they had become really close. What David didn't know is that Ian was grooming him to become a criminal partner. Ian would take David to Saddleworth Moor, which is like this moorland there in England. It's just like miles and miles of like open land. Ian would go out there, he'd get David drunk, and then one time right before he's trying to get David into this murder scheme, Ian says to him, you know what, like I have killed children, like a bunch of them. And David was like, okay, weirdo, like, you're just drunk. I, I know that didn't happen. And he just thought that Ian was like this really eccentric friend. And he just thought he was making stuff up. Which if someone says that to me, drunk or not, I'm probably calling the cops. <laughs> <laughs> so... David really, he didn't realize that Ian thought killing someone together could be this bonding experience for them. And because of David's past, Ian figured this wouldn't be a problem. So regardless of the fact that Myra was unsure about involving him in their wicked scheme, she looks up to Ian and she admires him. So she ultimately agrees to his wants and she's like, whatever, okay, I'll go grab him. So Myra's sister and brother-in-law, they didn't live far from where she did at her grandma's house. 
So she walks over and she just kind of acts like she just showed up to talk with Maureen, have a chat. She was just making up, you know, these little reasons that she was over there. And she's trying to make it as casual as possible so she doesn't arise any suspicion out of Maureen or David. And then she says, you know what, it's late. David, would you mind walking me home? And of course, David says yes, like he's not going to leave his sister-in-law to walk home alone in the middle of the night. And then he heads over to Myra's house with her. So do you think those two had a like normal in-law relationship or it was weird? I think it was normal. I think that Maureen and um, David were so much younger that I think they just kind of probably thought it was cool to hang out with them, have them buy them drinks. Okay. And I I think David really just didn't think much was weird about them at all until this. Okay. Night. Yeah. Because I couldn't tell if they Like if were... he was really involved or not. Well, if they're like, I don't know, you, their relationship just they're sounded like a little weird. weird. Yeah, because you said they were... <laughs> Yeah, like, like if him and Myra maybe because they were in an open relationship right. so I didn't well, know Myra they is brought like, him into it he probably did not want to be with Myra because she's like the ugliest person on this planet and that's okay to say because she <laughs> she gosh. is a freaking nightmare wow so she's like her ugly radiates from the inside okay and that's like part of the reason that a lot of people think she was so obsessed with Ian because he's seen I guess, is more attractive, well-dressed, all of this stuff. and Well, yeah, and I didn't know if there was anything going on with Ian and David. Oh. You said, yeah. I don't, I don't know, but I don't think so. Okay. I've never heard on that end. But I think, I think he just saw more as like, okay, he was getting into a lot of trouble. Like maybe he would want to do this with us. Because it always seems like they, for some reason, they always wanted to bring people into their stuff. Okay. So, yes, he goes and he heads over to Myra's house with her, unknowingly walking himself into the worst night of his life. So when Myra and David reach the door to Myra's home, she's like, wait out here and I'll grab you some miniature bottles to thank you for walking me home. And she means miniature bottles like little bottles of alcohol. So David just waits out there for a bit. And then instead of Myra answering the door, After a few minutes, he's greeted by Ian Brady. Quote, Brady opened the door and he said in a very loud voice, Do you want those miniatures? I nodded my head to say yes and he led me into the kitchen. And he gave me three miniature bottles of spirits and said, Do you want the rest? When I first walked into the house, the door to the living room was closed. Ian went into the living room and I waited in the kitchen. I waited about a minute or two, and then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high-pitched. Then the screams carried on, one after another, really loud. And then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him, very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room, and I saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch, and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him, with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head and hit the lad on the left side of his head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was a terrible blow. It sounded horrible. 
end quote. So as you can see, David was completely thrown into this scene with absolutely no indication of what he was about to witness. And they're doing all of this at Myra's grandma's house, and her grandma is actually home and upstairs. So she's woken up, and she actually comes, like, to the edge of the stairs, and she just yells down, and she's like, what is happening? But Myra yells something up to her and says that nothing's going on, and then that's that. Like, I guess she goes back to bed. Oh. Which is... Yeah. Well, how... Yeah. So how old was she? Myra she, was 23, so... That was I'd, her grandma? It was her grandma, which what? 43, maybe... Could have been 60s, 60s. 70s. Yeah. Hmm. So, I'm not sure. So, she heard this noise, and it was a... Sounds like a girl screaming. Well, that's what David says. Yeah. Yeah. Which I would assume the grandma then heard that too. Yeah. Ian says the grandma, he thinks, was woken up from the sound of the blows. Oh. But also, I'm sure it was just a mixture of everything. Oh. So I'm not sure if she was just kind of like, mm, I'm going to stay out of this. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think they had like, I'm not sure if they had home phones, but I don't think they had a lot of ways of communicating with people. So maybe the grandma's like, you know what? I don't know what's going on. And yeah, I'm going to worry about it tomorrow since I don't have a phone Yeah, where I could get out of this house. I don't know. So when Myra had gone to get David Smith, Ian was busy back at the home getting Edward drunk and comfortable. Ian says that the two of them had sex and Edward didn't feel anything suspicious until all of the sudden Ian came up behind him with a hatchet and he looked back at Ian right before he hit him. I can't even imagine the fear that must have gone through him. And it actually took Ian 14 blows with the hatchet to murder Edward Evans. Ugh. I know. So sad. I do not like that way of murder. No, it's like very violent. Yes. So at this time, Edward had been living there in Manchester with his parents, Edith and John. He also had a sister named Edith after their mother and a brother named John after their father. Their house sat on 55 Addison Street in Ardwick. And Edward had learned how to work hard from watching his own dad. John had worked as a uniform lift attendant. And once Edward became 18, he wanted to work too. So he got a job as a junior machine operator at Associated Electrical Industries. Edward had this ambition and a zest for life that we know was taken from him by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. So as David witnesses this horribly violent murder that Ian actually later describes himself as, quote, his messiest murder, he is absolutely terrified. David is probably wondering what in the world is happening, wondering if he's going to be next. So I'm assuming he's just trying to act like not super shocked or or like horrified so that Ian and Myra don't think he's going to be a problem. After Ian attacks Edward with that hatchet, David watches him smother Edward with a pillow and strangle him with an electrical cord to really make sure that Edward is dead. And it's then that Ian tells David he needs him to dispose of the body because he's pretty sure he actually just sprained his ankle while murdering Edward. (laughs) Like, oh, poor you. Can you you imagine? No. Can you imagine witnessing it? No. Oh, hey, we just killed this person. Can you take care of the body? Yeah. 
Like you'd obviously probably say yeah in the moment, right? Like uh, in your no. you wouldn't. Like you wouldn't help be, them take care of the well, body. You you wouldn't be scared that they're going to murder you. Oh, I nah, I didn't think about that. But initially, I thought I'd be like, uh, no, <laughs> um, leave me out of it. <laughs> yeah, I obviously in my head would be like, f these guys. But out loud, I'd be like, yeah, of course, I will definitely help <laughs> you until you're free from them and you can go tell. So that's kind of what David's doing. He's like, yeah, definitely, I will go dispose of this body for you but, but th- tomorrow yeah <laughs> well he does try to move edward's body by himself but he can't like he's not strong enough a dead body is a lot of you know weight, weight and like limp weight dead weight yeah so sad <laughs> dark humor <laughs> so when they realize that david's not going to be able to move edward's body himself they come up with this new plan so Ian's like, okay, let's move the body into a bedroom upstairs. And then tomorrow you have to come back here to the house and help me dispose of him. So a dead body upstairs. I thought the grandma was up there. She is. So what they're the putting world? him in another bedroom upstairs. Next to the grandma. Yeah, next to the grandma. Yeah. Yeah. It's they are disgusting. So David agrees to come back the next day. And they carry Edward upstairs. They put him in the bedroom where Ian actually hogties the body with like a string or a shoelace. It was something that David had on him trying to tie David into this crime. Okay, guys, I'm coming back at you with Hydronique Hydration, those little electrolyte powder drink packets I was talking to you about last week. Remember, They started in the midst of the pandemic when a frontline healthcare worker was developing all these headaches. And he came across this research study that was published showing that 81% of frontline healthcare workers were developing all these new headaches because of their face masks and face shields. And this was preventing them from eating and drinking properly while working. So he was leaving work tired, dehydrated, and burnt out. And I feel like probably a lot of you are leaving work the same way. While the founder of this company, he looked for a healthy drink mix everywhere. Something with the necessary vitamins and minerals, but no sugar. Something that was maybe keto-friendly and healthy. But most of these powdered drinks on the market, they have so much sugar and caffeine. They're really not actually good for you. And that's why he created Hydronique Hydration. It's sugar-free, keto-friendly, plant-based, and antioxidant-rich. And it's for daily use. It contains all the essential vitamins you need, and it has a super delish taste. Their product also contains elderberry, which is super good for immune-boosting properties and support during this cold and flu season and, of course, during the pandemic. So if you're leaving work tired and burnt out or you're having trouble with eating and drinking healthy during your busy days in 2022, go ahead and visit www.hydroniquehydration.com. That's www.hydroniquehydration.com. hydration.com. Or search for Hydronique Hydration on Amazon.com and over there they are offering a discount coupon at checkout for the next week after this ad. 
There is a link in my show notes. So go down, click it. I will send one to the website, one to the Amazon. You have to try this drink. Afterwards, Myra, Ian, and David clean up the crime scene and David is there for hours after. And they're just like drinking tea, they're cleaning, and David's trying to remain calm and casual and not seem like he's trying to hurry up out of there. And eventually he's like, you know what, I should probably head home to Maureen. She's going to wonder where I've been, you know, all night and I don't want her coming here looking for me. And Ian and Myra have no problem with this. Remember, they already tied David directly into this murder. They felt like he was in on it. So he would be back in the morning to help them. So David heads out and he's like, okay, see you in the mo- morning. Like, I'll, we'll, I'll come back. We'll dispose of this body. And he, I wonder if she wanted her sister involved. I know. Like, if like, they well, would have her husband's involved. Then. Yes. Like, if they could have gotten him involved, then they could have gotten her involved. Yeah. I would assume that's their ultimate plan. But it doesn't go as planned. Evil. So evil. Like, these are two of the people I really hate the most. So David, he's just like casually strolling down the street. Ian and Myra watch him walk away, but they don't realize how hard David's heart is beating. He's really not walking away with any hop to his step. He's just taking his time. But the second that David turns a corner and knows that he's out of sight of the couple, he starts into a dead sprint until he makes his way home. And this is where we circle back to the beginning of our story when David Smith is waking up his wife, Maureen Henley, and telling her that he just watched her sister's boyfriend murder a young boy. So David is panting. He's sweating. He's in tears. They know that they have to get police involved. But there aren't cell phones sitting on their nightstands. This is the 1960s. So they actually have to make their way out of their home and to a phone booth. And they're super scared. They were wondering, would Myra and Ian be watching for them to make a move? Was the couple going to come for them next? They were completely blindsided by the side of a couple they thought they knew. So Maureen and David, they armed themselves with a knife and a screwdriver. Oh, sounds like you. I know. <laughs> I've taken like, what are those things that open paint bottles? Has a circle and called. like a stick. Yeah. I take those on my bike rides, bear spray. But yeah, they're smart. They just grab anything they have in their house. They must not have had guns or anything. And they're like, we've got to have something. So they arm themselves with this and then they make their way down the road to find a phone box. Once they make it there, they dial 999 to reach the police department. And David says, I've witnessed a murder. So it's in the early morning hours of October 7th, 1965, that the Cheshire police are set up and ready to go. And Bob Talbot, he's given the task of going to the door of the home on 16 Wardlebrook Avenue. But luckily, he first disguised himself. Myra and Ian are two monsters that were not going to go down without a fight. Police don't even realize the full extent of their story yet. And neither do you as listeners today if you don't already know this story. Because we have a lot more to learn about this depraved couple. And what police didn't know but luckily avoided was that Myra and Ian were planning to go out on their own terms. If they were ever caught for their crimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like they'd 
suicide themselves. Yeah. yeah. Ian and Myra, they did, they plan to, you know, like start shooting at police if police came up to their home or ever caught them. And then they would just hope to be killed in the crossfire. And then if that didn't work, they also agreed that Ian would just shoot Myra in the head before killing himself. Oh, yeah. So, so awesome to plan out. Yes. So they had this little sui- murder suicide pact planned out or like a, you know, what is that called? Suicide by police or whatever is that? I thought there was a specific name, but when you plan to be killed to by shoot police at them or yeah. something. So they kind of had both those options set up. But Bob Talbot, he was smart. When he dressed up in a borrowed baker's overalls to cover up his police uniform. And he knocks on the back door. The couple would not have answered if they saw a police officer, but this was just a baker. Myra Henley answers and she's like, oh, hello. Like, we don't need any bread. Thank you anyway. But Bob, Bob, he says, yeah, no, I am actually going to come inside because I'm a police officer and I need to talk to the man who lives here. There's been a report of a disturbance here last night. And Myra tells him, like, no, no, there's no man who lives here. I just live here with my grandma. And Bob's like, "Okay, cool, but I need to talk to the guy that's here like right now. And she's like, yeah, there's no one here. But he just pushes the door open and he's like, yeah, I'm going to talk to the guy that's literally sitting right there on the couch. So Ian's just sitting there and on the couch, he won't even look up. He's actually writing a letter to his boss to tell him that he needs to take today off because he sprained his ankle. But he wasn't even going to need that note. So the officer, he just makes his way in and he repeats that they are investigating some violence that was reported. And again, Myra's like, there was no violence here. Okay, wait. (laughs) Where's the grandma? I don't know. She must still be upstairs in her bedroom. This was early in the morning. I did hear it was just before like 8 a.m. Myra was getting ready to go to work. Ian, of course, was taking off work for a sprained ankle and probably to dispose of Edward's body. And the grandma, she must just still be in her bedroom. Oh, my goodness. Because I don't hear anything about her in this part. Like, I haven't read anything. She must not have very good hearing or something. Yeah. Well, you can lose your hearing in old age, can't you? Yeah, true. (laughs) So, hopefully. Maybe she was scared. She's like, I'm not coming out of my bedroom. Something's (laughs) going on here. Yeah, literally. Now, Bob, he was accompanied by other police officers, and there were more officers stationed outside. I mean... There was literally a murder reported, so who knew what these people were capable of? And Bob asks if his team is okay to look around the house. Now, police, they walk around just sort of looking for any signs of this murder that David reported. And there are no signs, which is really strange. Like, was there really a murder in this home? But then they come to a bedroom, and the bedroom door is locked. So police are like, okay, guys, this door is locked and there, you know, is there a key somewhere? How can we get in? And Myra's like, oh, darn it. That key's actually at my work. Like, what a bummer. Sorry. Like, I guess we can't get in that room today. Backup plan for the key. Yeah. And police are kind of just rolling their eyes and they're like, you know what, Myra? No biggie. Like, you were just about to head to work anyway. We will go ahead and give you a ride and we can grab the key from you there. And at this point, Ian knows that police are not going to walk away without getting into that room. 
So he tells Myra she better just give them the key. And of course, once they're able to enter this room, they discover the violently beaten body of 17-year-old Edward Evans. And when police come back to tell Ian they found the body and he is being arrested on suspicion of murder, he stands up and he reaches for his gun. He's going down shooting, remember? That's the plan. So in this moment, he actually realizes that while he was carrying Edward's body upstairs, he was actually holding his gun like in a holster and it was really bothering him. So he had actually taken it off and set it upstairs, forgetting to ever bring it back down to the couch with him. So because of this mistake, these officers were not put in danger and Ian Brady was arrested. And while he's being handcuffed, he says, quote, Eddie and I had a row and the situation got out of hand, end quote. So I think he's insinuating that they maybe did some cocaine together and things got not good. Mm hmm. Yeah. So at this point, no one knows what involvement Myra has. In fact, like I've said, there was so much left to still be discovered. So she isn't arrested, but she's a wreck as she watches the love of her life being (laughs) taken into custody. So she's like, you guys better bring me to the police station and get this straightened out. And I'm definitely bringing my dog Puppet, whether you like it or not. So Ian and Myra, they had this dog together named Puppet. And despite the absolute nightmares they are, for some reason, they had a ton of love for their dog. And police are just like, whatever, bring your dog. We don't even care. And once Ian and Myra are both at the police station, they are taken into separate interrogation rooms. But Myra won't say anything about Edward's death because according to her, it had to have been a complete accident. She didn't even really know what happened. And this is like a reoccurring theme with Myra that is actually really frustrating. She constantly tries to separate herself from the things these two are eventually caught for. Like she's always like, oh, I wasn't really there. I didn't do it. Yeah, like I wasn't really around. And honestly, like a lot of people back then actually believed her like that she was under the like pressure of her boyfriend because she I mean she was literally obsessed with him but she's just like evil on her own and we'll see at the end of part one today that she was like very much involved in what they were doing Hmm. so Ian on the other hand he was like okay look I did have this night with Edward we were partying and unfortunately things did get out of hand and his death was a total accident Remember, Edward had 14 blows with a hatchet. He was smothered and he was strangled. So it's like, yeah, really seems like an accident. Yeah. And the police, they're not stupid either. So they're like, okay, whatever. And Ian makes sure to let them know that Myra had nothing to do with this crime or Edward's death. And this couple in the beginning, they really have each other's backs. But fast forward, this really changes and it's kind of funny watch but we'll get into that much later in part two or maybe a part three they start blaming each other oh yeah yeah to save their own yep because they both want to get out now because there was no direct connection to myra at this point they do actually have to let her go and once she is out she's obviously distressed with ian being put behind bars so she doesn't want to work anymore 
She heads to her work and she actually asks them to have her dismissed. And the reason she wants them to specifically dismiss her is because then she would be able to claim unemployment benefits. Like if she was fired versus if she quit. Yeah. Now her and Ian, they worked at the same place and we will get into all of that probably in part two when we dive into their lives and where they came from and how they met. But while she is here at work, she ventures into Ian's office and she retrieves a bunch of envelopes and she ends up burning the envelopes in an ashtray. Myra claims she didn't even look at them to see what was inside. She was just assuming they were plans for bank robberies and she didn't want Ian to get in trouble for that. But because of the horrific nature of their crimes, I'm going to assume these envelopes contained far worse content than some bank robbery plans. And I wish he wasn't free to get rid of evidence because, like, now we'll never really know. Yeah. But that would have been good. Yeah. It would have been nice if she was just arrested on the spot, but they just couldn't connect her. But thankfully, she wasn't out for long. Myra Hinley was only free for four days longer than Ian Brady before being arrested on October 11th, 1965. She was charged as being an accessory to Edward Evans' murder, and she was held on remand in Risley Prison. And during all of this time, David Smith was, of course, thoroughly questioned. He told them the entire story of what he had witnessed and all the gruesome details. On top of this, he told police that Ian had asked David to get rid of anything that might seem incriminating, and David actually watched Ian place some books into a suitcase. So the house Myra lived in where this murder occurred had had to be searched, and they also searched Ian Brady's home. Myra and Ian did not live together, and it's during these searches that police find the code for a locker. And this is a locker down at the train station. And David had told them that Ian was very fond of train stations. Remember, they even were there looking for a victim when they found Edward Evans. Yeah, that's probably where they picked up a lot of majority. Yeah, well, they didn't actually at this place, but they did keep a lot of evidence here. Hmm. Now, not only did they find this code, but they find this code specifically wedged into Myra's prayer book. So Ian, he hated religion. He was not into God in any sort of way. But Myra, she had always gone to church and she loved displaying how religious she was, which was a front and a mockery to anyone who is actually religious. Now, during the search of these homes, they also find a journal with the name John Kilbride on it. And this immediately stands out to investigators and honestly brought chills down their spines because John Kilbride was a little boy who went missing on November 23rd, 1963. Now, along with that discovery, they find dozens of pictures of Ian and Myra out at the moors. Pictures of them posing, ones with their dogs, ones with, you know, both of them, some of just Myra, some of just Ian. And there was one last place that the officers had to search. They needed to look at that train station inside the locker they had the code for. And it was there in that locker on October 15th, 1965, that they found the suitcase David Smith had told them about. Inside, there are nine photographs. These were pornographic photographs of a naked and tied up little girl. 
And mm. with the pictures, there's a recording. Ugh. I know. So this is really sad. All the murders they do and literally everything to do with this couple is horrific. But this piece is probably like the darkest and is kind of hard to even say or hear. So I know. Yeah. Police officers, they take this evidence back to the station and they press play on the tape. Men who had been on the force for years, seasoned investigators, people who saw a variety of crimes through the years, they were all brought to absolute sobs. This recording has never been released. There's kind of here and there somewhat of a transcript, but it's never been released in full. And I'm going to reiterate some parts of this recording to get the point across of what was being heard, but I'm not going to go into deep detail. So at one point, they hear a man, and it is Ian Brady. And he yells, get in the effing basket. And then a little girl can be heard saying, please, oh, don't help me, please. And there, then there's a woman on the tapes, and it's Myra Henley. She's telling the little girl it's going to be okay. She tells her to be quiet. And then she tells her to stuff this rag into her mouth. And the little girl is crying when Myra says, In your mouth, hush, hush, shut up, or I'll forget myself and hit you one. Keep it in. And the little girl asks why this is in her mouth. And she starts crying and screaming that she can't breathe. She asks Ian and Myra to take their hands off of her. And she starts calling them mummy and daddy. So I think she was like trying to get them to kind of feel sad for her. Oh. I know that's sad, huh? Yeah. That like makes me have tears. Jeez. So I think she just like wanted to appeal to them. Like maybe if they're like thinking of me as their own child, they'll let me go, you know? Yeah. And when they're forcing her to get undressed, she says, don't undress me, will you? I really want to see my mummy. I know. So that's the saddest. I can't believe that she thought yeah, of like that. Young. Like young. She was planning to do that. Because like, like if, I don't know. I just don't think. She is very young. She's actually 10 years old. Oh, okay. So I was thinking like around Charlie's age. Oh, like yeah. five. So she is 10. So she is really young. And I don't know who even knows what like could be going through your head at that point. And it was just... That was smart, though. She was trying to, like, manipulate it, probably. Yes. And she, like, keeps begging them. You know, she even tells them at one point, like, I swear on the Bible. Like, I'll swear on the Bible, I think. Meaning she won't tell on them if they just let her go. Mm -hmm. And this tape, it actually goes on for 16 minutes. After undressing this little girl and taking the pictures, Ian and Myra rape her and they kill her. The recording captures her dying screams and pleas. And the entire time of this recording, Myra and Ian had the song Little Drummer Boy playing in the background on repeat. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So John Stalker was a police officer who had to hear this tape. And he said every time he hears the song The Little Drummer Boy, Mm. it sends a chill down his spine as his mind goes back to what he heard. And he even specifically said every time he hears that song, he thinks of Myra Henley, which remember, she tries to always disassociate herself. Mm -hmm. And what she claims in this murder later on is that, oh, like she didn't even know what was happening. Like she knew that the girl was there, but 
when he killed her and everything, she was actually running a bath. She was busy. Mm. And it's like, well, first of all, even if that was true, if you were running a bath and letting your boyfriend rape and kill a 10-year-old girl, you're still evil. Yeah. But also, you're on the recording, so we Mm. know you were involved. Yeah. Like, she's so annoying. What a bunch of perverts. Yeah. And there were people that supported Myra. Like, there were Myra Henley supporters. Really? Yeah. The girl on the Morbid podcast said she wants to start a group punch a Myra Henley supporter in the face. <laughs> I, I was would like, join yes, it. I will join that as well because she like she should have no reporter. She wasn't in like some, you know, abusive relationship where she was being forced into this stuff. Yeah. So after hearing this recording, of course, there's like not a dry eye among officers and that, you know, had to listen to this harrowing audio. T- yeah. Tape. Yeah. So soon at, soon officers actually tie this recording to another missing girl. Like I said, she's 10 years old and her name is Leslie Ann Downey. I'm going to show you a picture because she's so cute. Huh? <laughs> she is cute. I know. She's like, she a, looks lo- like a little angel. lady. I know. Her little smile is so cute and her cheeks. Mm. Yeah. She looks like really little. It's so, so sad. So this recording is obviously so disturbing. It's painful to hear. It's painful for me to talk about. So we are actually going to end part one right here. We'll get the palate cleanser. We're going to take a break and we will be back with part two to talk about the details in the murder of Leslie Ann Downey. And then there are three more murders after this still left to be discovered. Oh my gosh. Yeah, there's a lot that these people did you might have to do it record it yourself because <laughs> you don't want to hear about these no babies. i don't like that i know i know this that little leslie's recording is like i think that's like the hardest part that's why i kind of wanted to put it in here and get past it and also to show people like how evil these guys are so that through the rest of it because in part two we'll probably get into their like childhoods and you know how sometimes you can feel bad for like a murderer when you're talking about their crappy childhoods. Yeah. So I wanted this there at the forefront so we know who they are. Like how absolutely sickening they are. So yeah, we will be back with part two very soon. Hi, I'm Tony Waters and I'm going to be talking about Justin Bieber and my mom went to the concert when she went to Utah to see her mom and her stepdad. Did you know Justin Bieber's middle name is Drew? And Justin Bieber is from Canada. I've been in Canada when I drove from Alaska to Idaho. Have a good day.